Good evening, George. Hi there. Sorry, I had a little trouble logging in. No problem but at here all. Here I am. Well, here welcome. Am. Welcome. So we have a great turnout this evening. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Good. And uh, welcome, George. So this Thank is you. our uh, monthly mastermind with Mr. George Ross, uh, one of the greatest deal makers of all time. Uh, he's taught at NYU in uh, the law school for close to 20 years. He's famous, of course, of being Mr. Trump's advisor for most of the last 40 years and uh-huh. <laughs> and as his right-hand man and uh, co-star of the TV show The Apprentice. Uh, we've got some great questions lined up this evening, and so take out your journals and pens and paper, and let's take lots of notes. Uh, George, welcome. Hi. Good to be here. So, George, you're just back from uh, visiting China with your family. How was that? Oh, it was great. Very interesting at that point as far as uh, China's concerned. Of course, there was uh, a lot of pluses and minuses. But basically, they you know, they don't have a, the only economy they got is labor. Yes. They don't have any factories as such at that point. They only they exist to meant to put together somebody else's products. And cheap labor is really the the, the true driving force behind the economy. Absolutely. I remember when I first went to China and we were looking to manufacture some goods there with our North American mindset, we are very focused on doing things with the minimum amount of labor. And the question they asked us was, how can we build your product with the maximum amount of labor? Because that's what they had. And so we have to really turn our mind upside down into terms of how to think that through. Yeah, that's 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 true, but that's that's a product. But it was, it was very interesting, you know, to see what's uh, what's going on, very good, and uh, what's doing with the people. And the people seem happy, but they they have very little, uh, you know, in the way of growth, but dissatisfied. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was what was the best part for you? Uh not the best part. The best part was being with family. Family is the whole key. Absolutely. So I. I I enjoyed being with family. We'd been there before, but we were there in the 1970s, and changes that have taken place and that are just, uh, you know, they're, they're beyond unbelievable. Absolutely. I remember uh, being going to Hong Kong, and there was a little town next to Hong Kong called Shenzhen that in the 1970s had 50,000 people, and today it's over 13 million. Well, that's what happens. The same thing. It's a small, a small town, a small city in, uh, in China is a million five. Yeah. It's small. Yeah, we we don't realize that, but that's what it is. Okay, let's All right, go to work. Well, let's jump. Yeah, let's jump in. So, uh, <laughs> so back in January, you offered your your former boss some rather prophetic advice, specifically around the Michael Flynn investigation. We're now a hundred days into the new presidency. If Mr. Trump was asking for advice, what would you be advising him today? Well, advising him today is that uh, he's 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 dealing with politics, not the Trump organization would you run. And as a result, it's entirely different. Everything you say, everything you do, every move you make is subject to criticism. Most of it's going to be negative because they're not happy as to how you got there. And you're not a popular president, so my feeling would be is to uh, uh, throw everything on the table and let's get down to business. Let the chips fall where they may. Let the let the, the Congress or the FBI take their reports any way they want and say we're not even going to talk about that. Let's go on and figure out how we can... Uh, uh, make the the uh, tax bill work and how we can self health care. Let's do things that are important for the for the country, rather than get sidetracked at that point in, in pure politics. But that's a hard thing to do. Absolutely. Nobody likes to get shot at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let alone Donald. He he has a need to fight back. That's correct. That's his. That's his. Uh, you know. That's his. That's always always what have been. And and this 
politics, you don't fight back. Yeah, exactly. You just let it die. That's all. You just let it die. It'll die of its own volition. The only thing that makes politics what it is is the media, which pushes it up. And they get the headlines, they get the reports, they get the the ratings, and the ratings get the advertisers, and uh, you know, people swallow it up, and that's what it is. But it's not. It's not. It's not really really news. Not newsworthy as such. If it is, let's get it out on the table. But my feeling is it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, this first question comes from Tammy Mitchell. She she brought forward a report, and I sent you a graph out of that report earlier today, George. Where in yeah. the first quarter of this year, we've seen some huge numbers of retail closures nationwide. Um, mm-hmm. Some have really called it the beginning of the apocalypse in retail. And in fact, Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba, which is China's version of Amazon, now I guess larger than Amazon, has publicly predicted a death spiral in conventional retail that he's predicting is going to last another 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no doubt there's going to be some dislocation in retail as weaker players like Sears, you know, get crushed. But knowing this trend, would you invest in retail today? Are there any locations where you would invest? It, it looks like a, a dire situation. Well, uh, that, that's 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 too broad. It is it is a, a, a difficult situation, but it depends on what you're trying to sell. And if you if your retail basically is you are selling something that uh, people want because they can get it at the store or they can try on the size of they something they want to get done quickly. They don't want to send it. They don't want to go. Uh, order it on the uh, internet and then get it back and then try it on. And so it's it's more of a fashion item, something else at this point, which is not. So it's it's something which has to be more or less immediate. And anything with retail, which is which requires immediate uh, adherence to, is important. Whereas whereas if it can be bought on the internet and then you, tie, you waste time or time, it doesn't. So it's the nature of the product that right. that, that counts. Right, All right, right. now. For example, your retail car dealers, whether you, whether they like it or not, are never are, are subject to normal retail regulations because people want to see the car, they want to drive the car. You can't go on on uh, online and you go to Amazon and say send me a nineteen uh, a brand new car or what have you. It just doesn't work that way. So if the product has something special that requires visualization or immediate satisfaction, that type of retail will continue to work. Beyond the typical retail or that's, that's occurred previously, if you're just buying a product, and that product can be is a mass is a mass product, which with many locations, it's a question of price for it can easily be done online. It'll be done online. So it's the nature of the of the retailer rather than it, than it is just to talk about retail space in general. Right, right. Okay, that's a that, that's a very good insight. So I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be much more. You got to be much more uh, careful about what what you would say in retail or what stores would be. You know, I mean, let's say my personal feeling is, yeah, women shoe stores are always going to exist. Women will like to try the shoes on, see what they look when they're there in the store. It's not a situation where they're going to go online and buy the shoes, hoping that they fit or not. Maybe they look the same, but I can return them. No, it's a, it's it's something where if it's if personal and you want to know that it's done, it's done. That's that. There has to be a personal touch rather than just a product. Yeah, that's a that's a good, very good insight. And you know, there's certainly some some categories. For example, wedding dresses. I think a lot of the wedding uh, bridal. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. A, you, you, that's, a, that's a perfect example. 
Well, actually, what's happened in that space, because wedding dresses are so expensive, a lot of people will go into the bridal shops, they'll try on a bunch of dresses, and then they'll go order it online for 30% less. Because they, you know, they're doing it two or three months in advance, they can wait a week for shipping. And so a lot uh, of them... I understand if they do that, but nevertheless, if it's something, then, then the retailer, whoever it is, if in fact they can offer something else, say, well, hey, we will do the alterations for, for, for no additional charge, just come in, and we want to make sure it fits right, you'll have, you'll have two or three fittings. Now, once you do that, the customer must come up because you need more fittings. If you just can buy it off the uh, off a rack, that's different. Right, but most right. times they can't be bought off a rack. Yeah, yes. When it comes to a specialty, specialty item. But I don't think my is I wouldn't call it doomsday for retail. I would call it uh, difficult, or maybe doomsday for certain types of retailers. That you're going to see less bricks and mortar stores, but there are always there are always going to be people who want to shop in a store. Absolutely. Now, it may not. It's not the same in the degree of merchandise, but a good merchandise, you can see what customers would, would still to go to the, go in the store and what we sell, and therefore to change their merchandising to match the the, the customer base. So it's 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 become more difficult and uh, to do, but it's it's not retail as usual. But I don't agree. Uh, uh, with Jack Ma's approach at that point, that uh, it's it's the death spiral and, and last the next thirty years. I don't I don't agree. I don't agree. I think there's a limitation on uh, on what people will do, will buy on the on the internet and Amazon and so forth. I think there's a definite limitation, but it depends on the nature of the product you're looking to buy. Okay. Well, the next question comes from from Lowe Hornbuckle in Dallas, and Lowe runs a series of senior living homes. These are assisted living homes built on a platform of conventional single-family residence where they're housing anywhere from 8 to 12 residents per home. Mm-hmm. Now, senior housing traditionally focuses on, you know, the four main aspects of food, lodging, personal care, and, of course, social interaction. Now, the traditional high-rise assisted living buildings, they may have 150, 200 beds, they're organized around nursing and the attendant care component, and everything else is kind of an afterthought. The social component in particular is sacrificed, and you know I don't care if you you know have a painting class or a cooking class, it's still not yeah. the same. Um, his vision is to maybe scale the business by taking that concept that he's been quite successful with and developing purpose-built communities, maybe a small campus of clustered homes providing maybe up to 150 residents in this miniature campus. He seems to think that that's a logical extension of his business model. What do you think? Is is he onto something? I think he's definitely onto something. I, I think that uh, if you can get away from the general concept of, uh, of uh, senior assisted living, which is just having a place for bed, uh, a bed for people to go have meals, and this is what 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 he says the the nursing and attendant care component, uh, and get in, get into something more meaningful, uh, that may be more specialized. That uh, there are a lot of people that are in, the, in these senior citizens, which have different needs. They may need just socialization, and they need to, to keep the mind active and something in, intriguing. And uh, if, in fact, uh, there are, would, would be uh, places which would give them that, I think that they would do very well. I think it's not one size fits all, 
because but it's but it's really if they made it more specialized then people would know that that would get around and I think you'd get to get people. I mean there are people that are not very sick and therefore why should they be with sick people that uh, just because they happen to be older? I I think he's, he's I definitely think he's he's onto something and if you made, if you scaled it down smaller size I think that you would you'd find that there would be yes a a base that would go say I want to go somewhere where I am stimulated. And that may not be the typical uh, senior senior home nursing home. So, yeah, I, I think he's on to something that could change the model, and I think it could work very well. I do too. When he first shared this with me, I thought he was onto something as well. And you know, in particular, the average age of people entering into senior care is 85. In many cases, that person is widowed; they've lost a spouse, and so their their whole social structure has been turned upside down. And if you go into a high-rise building, you know that feels like a hospital. It's just not the same. Uh, you want to no, be it's a- not. It's not the same. It's definitely not the same. And I think that if it's if you're careful, careful, yeah. Just sorry. In other words, that my my feeling is that if the uh, the senior the the homeowner or the the developer of the home will do careful screening and careful advertising as to the nature of the product and social socialization is a major part that it would be very successful in attracting the type of uh, participant that he wants rather than just somebody that's going to a uh, nursing home or a senior home or what have you because it's there or that they lost a loved one and this is the place to go because they have no alternative. I think he's onto something. Very good. Very good. Well, I know he, he wanted to be here, but it's his birthday today, and his wife's taking him out for dinner, so he'll be listening to the recording with a lot of interest, I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I think it's I think it could be a great idea. Great, uh, great uh, a variation, uh, more specialization, rather than just catering for or caring or for a place for older people. And there, there are, I've seen it, there are, if you have seniors, which are, which are on, but are fairly mobile, and lucid, so the mind is okay. They don't want to be in a place where they have nobody with wheelchairs and and dementia. That's not for them. Correct. So they're unhappy. So they're saying this: if you if you can screen out the applicant or figure out some way to do intelligent screening of the applicant, I think this could be very successful. Absolutely. And if you're doing a campus of of uh, smaller homes, you can take one of those homes and you say, okay, this particular home. We specialize in Parkinson, and this other home, we specialize in dementia or physical mobility. Absolutely, and, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now that can, I mean, those those that you have, they, you can you can cater. How about the the, the meals? With the, the food is catered is 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 created basically for the for the people. So somebody that's got a got a gluten free gluten free problem, you have a uh, you can handle it, or or some type of a a uh, uh, an eating thing or uh, allergies. Absolutely. In other words, you, you can, if you scale down the model and it becomes smaller and you now make it more specialized, I think it could work very well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, this next question is for Ash. Hey, George. Um, last month we talked about a project we're undertaking just outside of Banff, Alberta. It's the purchase of a condo hotel for an investment property. Um, so we're continuing to make progress. We're trying to source a property that meets our criteria. Um, we should see some strong cash flows of 1600 to 2000 per month after our debt service and the cash investment will be somewhere between 90 or 70 and 90,000. 
So what we've discovered is that most banks aren't willing to fund these types of short-term rental properties. Uh, the kind of the theory is that if there isn't a 12-month lease, the income stream isn't guaranteed. And in Canada here, we only have about eight banks, unlike the states where there's thousands. So there's not much mm-hmm. more negotiating. Banks have much more negotiating leverage here, and there's far less competition between the banks. So how would you advise us to negotiate with the banks to make the deal attractive to them? Well, no, you got, you got you know, we're saying negotiating with banks on the type of product that you're talking, that, that, that's, that's wasted time, wasted effort because that's not their model. That's not what they want. They're looking for something that's, that's secure, long range. And so the more you, you try to convince the banks, and they don't do, banks are not business people. All they want is how do they get their money back and they talk stability. And you're talking short-term rental. However, there are plenty of, uh, of areas where, where there are venture capitalists to be more than happy or investors to say, fine, if you give them a good rate of return and you say we've been doing this over a period of time, you got a track record, you, they'll, they'll be happy to give you the money because they're not bankers. Right. Now, they're not looking for their money back at this point. They are looking to say, good, I now have a rate of, an attractive rate of return on on a property which is with or properties which are uh, uh, being which are managed properly and show a continual rate of return. So you need somebody who's looking for long term growth instead of short term return. And it's not a bank. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I I think that's very good, George. Uh, would it be the case that perhaps after they you know work with a period of time uh, f- for a period of time, maybe with a B lender or someone else who, for whom this may fit, then maybe go back and refinance after, say, 24 months of income history? Sure. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. If the only way that you get the, well, the other way, you're, you're, you're pointing out another area. If, in fact, you can prove to a bank you've got a good track record and you're somebody that knows what you're doing and a sound investor, a sound investment they don't get as much involved in the nature of what you do as to how well you do it and are you a solid citizen. So, but that's building a track record. But if you, if you haven't got it and you go to the bank in the first instance, they get very nervous because they say, what happens is if, they, if the rental market changes and, and things go down and I don't see my own money, banks are not, uh, are not business people. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good observation. That's, that's spot on. Okay, perfect. Uh, next question is from Patrick and Matt. Uh, Matt, are you on the line? Yeah, Victor, I'm here. Okay, go ahead. Hello, Mr. Ross, how are you? Fine, Pat, how are you? Not too bad. Um, I have one question with basically two parts additional within the question. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, here we go. It's basically Patrick and myself, we've built a portfolio with smaller real estate buildings, uh, basically triplexes, fourplexes, small multifamily stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been leveraging one after the other to finance the next purchase with the uh, the refinancement money. So though it looks like it's 80% loan to value, it's actually some of the properties may be 100% loan to value. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is that some of these properties are mostly C-class level properties in communities that aren't going to show very much appreciation in the front in the future. Mm-hmm. Generate good cash flow, but we're starting to see the limitations of that strategy now. Um, we're leveraged pretty much to the max. So we know that's, that's pretty risky. So we were curious mm-hmm. what you would advise us to do. Should we sell the properties? Should we bring in more investors for a share of ownership to reduce the debt? Should we just stay on course the way we're going? Um, we're just trying to figure out what we should do and if we should keep going further with uh, 
hoping that there's not any major capital repairs, focus our energies on better assets and raising capital for future acquisitions. Uh, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but uh, this it's a tough decision. Wait, like, and, and it's 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 one really I gotta say that you have to treat each property separately and think of it individually. If the, if you think it, it's it's reached its maximum and sell it and get out. If on the other hand you think well the, the area is good and it, and it has reached its maximum but it's it's sustainable, then that one I'll keep. So you have to separate them out and and uh, diversify as to which one you want. You know, and, and what to do. And this is typical in any any real estate property, any real estate ownership. Diversify. So it's when you start saying triplexes, duplexes, duplexes, it, it, each piece of real estate is separate and distinct. It's got an area. It's got a, it's got a history. The, the area is going, is it going up, going down? And what's the change in the population? So you have to analyze it and then come up with the appropriate decision for the prop, for the property rather than the overall concept of the nature of the ownership you have. So I would say diversification is the absolute key. And then you have to pick each one, that's all. And, you know, don't be afraid. You can never go broke but taking a profit. Well, that's the thing. Like, I personally, we personally treat each one as its own individual entity. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's the only thing. We, we, we judge them per performance, per property. Uh, we do our mm-hmm. banking or paying everything per property that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I guess that way is going that way. We're just trying to decide what step we can take to the next plateau now that we're maxed out. Like, how do we get to the next step? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, well, you, you, you. I can't. You know, it's 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 hard to do it to to give you some kind of an answer, which is like an all all encompassing answer because it depends Good. on the, each individual property, how what kind of condition it's in. Uh, the cat, what's, what it looks like for the future. Am I going to require a lot of improvements? Uh, if I have vacancies, how long do they take before they get, uh, rented? So it, it's something you got to really go at individually and then make the decision. And you can basically rate them. You can rate yep. your property, say, this is number one to sell. This is number one to keep. And, and, and you do that. And then if you list, Go down the list appropriately and change the list periodically to see if it's what it is, and then uh, do what you think is appropriate for each individual property at a, at the point in time that you think something should be done. It's it's complex, but it, that's the way to do it, and it does work. No, it makes it makes sense because actually, I've, I've used as you're talking, I'm thinking of a couple of properties that I could reassess likely and decide whether they go or stay type of deal. Not only that, but then you could also say if I if I generate cash, what is there is some opportunity now for the cash to go into a different situation, which might be more beneficial to have a, a better growth potential in its use. Right. What you're in, what the, the type of business you're in now is pretty is pretty solid and secure, uh, but not not exciting. <laughs> I guess you could say that. Yeah, it's pretty safe and secure. It's the slower path. Um, you know, it, it is like what you just said. It, it's pretty safe. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's nothing wrong with that. Safety works. Matt, just a question here. Um, you know, the smaller properties that fall under residential underwriting rules, at a certain point you're going to run out of the ability to borrow, whereas in the world of commercial, you really don't have a ceiling. 
Um, is that an issue for you as well, where you're basically running into a lending cap based on, um, you know, the number of properties that you have in, in, in residential? Uh, actually, yes, that is an issue I've come up against now. I'm at a point where banks have decided that I'm a risk because I have multiple properties or I pass their cap for banking with them. Um, well, you say you have multiple properties, but you're not mortgaging all the properties in one shot, are you? I mean, there was a blanket loan or anything that each one is separately mortgaged and covered, I assume. They are. They're each mortgaged separately. Um, however, the banks, let's say if I have four properties at one bank, they don't want to risk me having a fifth property with them. So I have to move to another bank. And so I understand. So, yeah, I understand. They, they, but uh, but uh, I, I do think that uh, it would be wise for you to uh, expand your your banking interest. You, you, the banks, go, go to other banks. But you'll go to another bank and say, say the bank, here's what I got uh, with, with this one bank and the four properties. Here's the cash flow. Here's what it is at that point. I'd like to establish a new banking relationship and do something with you. How about you taking two properties? You can, if you, you create a certain amount of competition between lenders is good. Agreed. If you know, Agreed. If you know the lender and, uh, and who their comp- competition is. They don't like to lose loans. No, they, they don't, don't like that, to. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I think at that point, broaden your base. Okay, I, I'll try that approach. I know I don't know. If maybe it's because we're in Canada. Some of the rules are a little bit stricter or different. Um, well, the rules aren't any different. You 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 can deal with a lot. You can deal with different with with more than one lender. That does that rule doesn't change. I don't care where you are. So no, uh, I know I've been told before that uh, because I have multiple properties that some banks don't want. My risk in their portfolio. So George, the issue is. So George, the issue is that if um, if he's under residential underwriting rules, they're assuming the path to repayment is from his employment income, his W two income, versus yeah. in the world of commercial, there it's really the asset that's repaying the loan. So in in residential, if you have more than a certain number of properties, you hit a ceiling and you, you're just not going to get beyond that. That's kind of where he's at. So I think he needs to yeah. transition no, I, to commercial. I, no, I I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, also, you can uh, service, there's always more competition out there. So if you've got whoever is his present lender is, there are probably other lenders that would like a piece of the deal or what there. So what's available, you have to find out who's, who's anxious to make loans and looking for new customers. They're constantly banks or lenders are interested in new customers and maybe that's an opportunity. It's it's easy to get to get comfortable with one particular lender, but on the other hand, it's good to have diversification. So you can you know then you can you can bargain one as against the other. That is true. I know that's that's how I ended up with the lender that I'm actually with currently. Is they bargain mm-hmm. me away from the other one. <laughs> okay, but uh, but don't stop looking. Okay. And what do you think about going commercially and stepping it up, like so I don't have these kinds of restrictions? Would that be a <laughs> wise move at this point too? Well, it's something to look into for sure. Okay. Good. Thank you. Next question is from Sonia. Sonia, are you on the line? You may need to press star six to unmute if you're on the line. I, I'm on the line. Sorry. Perfect. Okay. No problem. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes. Hi there. Hi, George. Um, Hi. My question is that I am starting a small real estate investment fund under Regulation D-506, and um, I'm evaluating various projects and uh, although I prefer to, um, I prefer to be um, a majority player uh, and where I'm the lead investor and have a strong relationship and have control um, of the project. 
uh, at least right at the get-go, um, in the beginning part of my uh, fund career, I'm not always able to select such projects. Mm-hmm. So given the situation, what would you say is um, a, a criteria that I should uh, put on top of my list when I'm selecting a project to include in my investment fund? Okay, the one is this one. Do you have control over it? That's, that's the key project. In other words, you have to be able – it has to be something that you have full faith in and that you can control and run out a, uh, a, a game plan, a business plan, which basically makes sense that you can sell to uh, or, or convince somebody who's an investor but primarily coming in for, for money. Now, that's, that's doable uh, depending on your plan. And uh, I would not go to a situation where you're the, uh, a, small, a small fish in a big pond. Or you go with no. you go to venture capitalists. When you go to venture capitalists at that point, they end up with the venture, and you end up without without the capital. All right. Well, what if I'm a minority um, partner? So maybe I don't have full control. I do have some control, say in cases where unanimous consent is uh, required or majority um, partnership. Both yeah, that's, that's, no, that's that, that's that, that's fine. But but you you're, you're painting with a very broad brush. Broad brush depends yeah. on what. What 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 type of a, uh, a, a situation has to come up with? They have you need their you need their input. You need their control. So it's not something that you just say, okay, everything we everything I do will come back to you. There has to be limitations. If I if I finance or you or I do this or I'm planning on uh, what you know what restrictions are. If I'm planning on I'm getting a bank, putting out more money, planning on putting a, a, a secondary offering where I raise money. It depends on what what you're seeking on doing to get approval for that, but not blanket approval. You're still should still be in charge. If you're doing okay. something with weakens their investment, or uh, that's that's a different story. Otherwise, if if in one minute they've got the they're they're got the forty percent interest and you're watering it down to twenty percent, they should be entitled to that. But nevertheless, the twenty percent. Could be a lot worth more than the forty percent, depending upon if you've approved the venture. So it's uh, it's I would say do something where you stay in control and uh, maybe not uh, with such great big grand grandiose ideas that you need so much money that you have to give up control in order to get it. So George, if Sonia's in a situation where she doesn't have control, what kind of checks and balances? should she be putting in place so that she can fulfill her fiduciary responsibility to the investors in the fund? Well, the fiduciary responsibility is not control. There's a certain, whatever you could you would consider to be a major decision, she has to be available. They have to come back to her for that major decision. So you'd have to indicate what you think would be the major, certainly the sale of the property, the sale of part of the property, uh, the, the loan structure you're doing with banks and the repayments. Anything which would which would adversely affect the the uh, people the the other investors is something she should be in on, so that they know that they have somebody they can look to as a watchdog for them, and also to meet the the statutory regulations. So, in a situation like that, for example, it would maybe require a supermajority, not just a majority uh, vote, in order for a particular decision to be made. Absolutely, absolutely, you're absolutely right. So, Sonia, are you familiar with the concept of a supermajority? Do you know what that is? Yeah, um, and I am—I have uh, put in a place where um, I try to get unanimous control, but the, the lead partner uh, in this one investment that I'm uh, analyzing and looking at 
he uh, didn't want to go for that because they're running the operation. They didn't want to stumble into a situation where uh, the operations get stuck because everyone's in a dispute. So super, we decided um, with the super majority. So in that case, uh, it, he, the lead partner has to get um, at least one other partner out of the three total partners that are involved um, to consent to the major decision. Mm-hmm. So things that are uh, going outside of the budget that are greater than a certain amount, for example. Um, and some, certain things like disposing of the property or uh, inviting additional partners that does require uh, majority, uh, unanimous consent. So we have put, I have put those things into structure. Okay. There's also a possibility, another possibility you can consider very often. Maybe there is some way that you can have that the investors, all of them, including yourself, when there is a major decision to be made and there is a, uh, a discrepancy between they don't, don't have it, maybe you can find somebody, some lawyer or a judge or whatever that everybody respects and he becomes the arbitrator. He can make the decision. He or she can make the decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, as they say it, that's not, uh, I've seen that, I've seen that done. As a matter of fact, I have served in that capacity on occasion where everybody says, well, if there's, if there's a problem between the two partners, let George solve it. You know, they've, they've done that. And, uh, you know what happened? Nothing. They what never happened? came to me. They never <laughs> came to me. But it solved the problem. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. They, at this point, they said, well, wait a minute. This one, can't we solve it among ourselves before we go to George? And they did. Well, we, we are actually looking for such an arbitrator, so. Great. <laughs> Great. So you're ready, you're one step ahead of me. Yeah. Well, we don't know who to identify yet, but um, you gave me a good idea. I mean, a respected lawyer or judge. It Absolutely. Have to be somebody. Who, we, a respected um, lawyer who knows, yeah. who's familiar with the nature of your business and the nature of the investment, the nature of what you're looking to do. That's mm-hmm. a, a great, great way to go. It solves the the disputes of trying to solve the dispute now, you solve it when it comes up or is, and you'll probably find that, that they don't usually use that uh, safety valve mm-hmm. as much as you mm-hmm. think they would. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so George, next is a project that I got pulled into, and I got pulled into raising the money for an unusual project. There was a luxury yacht builder in New Orleans called Trinity Yachts, and they used to make 50 to $60 million luxury vessels. And after the 2008 financial crisis, they fell on hard times. They had a little bit of mismanagement. They basically took on any project that would give them revenue, and they mm-hmm. took on a project to build a $300 million commercial vessel for an oil company, only yeah. they screwed up and they underbid it by $50 million, so that kind of killed the company. And eventually they were acquired by the, you know, that customer. And now today that oil company is looking to divest itself of the non-core assets of which a shipyard clearly is a non-core asset. Mm-hmm. So, um, the assets can be purchased for $11 million plus an additional 9 million in restart costs to restart the business. Uh, we wouldn't restart it to build new hulls, but would simply reopen the shipyard to focus on the significant refit business for luxury yachts worldwide. Uh, the average refit is about $3 million, and uh, even boats that are not being going into refit every five years, they have to have a hull inspection, so they have to be 
hauled out of the water into a dry dock for about half mm-hmm. a million dollars. And usually when they're there, that's when they usually get sold on a refit. So they could do about 30 refits a year with the capacity they have. Uh, the land value of the 48 acres, the half a mile of waterfront alone is about 15 million. And, um, we're talking to a bunch of folks co- currently in Monte Carlo, potentially about funding this project. Mm-hmm. It's on a short timeline. And as you know, whenever timelines are short, people get scared. So if, this was, yeah, if, if this was your project, how would you go about getting it funded? Uh, uh, it's a good question at that point. I don't think you can get it funded if it's on a short timeline. It's a highly specialized situation. You need somebody with very deep pockets who's looking to take a take a risk or a gamble. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a hard person to find. So uh, mine, if it were my situation with this, I would walk. I just don't see it working. It's got too. It's got too. Too It's got good potential. It's got good good assets, but it's got uh, monetary uh, limitations and what are you going to do with the shipyard after you, after you retrofit it? you got to have customers. Oh, yeah. There is, there is a backlog of customers. There's only a small number of shipyards in North America, mostly in South Florida, uh, that are operating on very high margins. And so there is a backlog. Can't, can't, I, yeah. You know, I just can't to, to be at yeah. this point. Yeah. It's, it's asset value, everything is, is, is great and it's good, it's good potential. But if you, if you told me you've got the, a, there was a contract to build four or five of these four or five ships and you get this with, with down payments. And so that's a different ballgame. So you, you know that you've got customers at the end just building up the facility if this is by itself without having uh, named customers is, is a different situation. I'm not so sure that uh, shipbuilding is uh, was a route that I would like to go today. Okay. Well, this is why I ask you the question. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's my answer. Good luck. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay, um, next question is from uh, Stefan Arneo. Stefan, are you on the line? We don't have Stefan. Okay, if we don't have Stefan, I'll go, I'll go to Sia and then I'll see if, uh, if we can find Stefan. Sia, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, go ahead. Hi, George. Hi, how are you? Fantastic, how are you? Okay, what can I do for you? Um, I think where we're at right now with the business is uh, where we've essentially filled out all the roles of the business sales, construction, and finance. Um, we sold $30,000 today, and around 20% net, we should make about 6000 net. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the whole mindset thing. Like, I'm trying to figure out what my role is as a leader in a business when all the functions are essentially, they're up and running. I can't say they're perfect, but they're up and running. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I understand your dilemma, and it's typical. The solution to it is the people that you that you're willing to delegate to. They have to know exactly what it is that you want. So you have to give them a game plan, a really, really good game plan uh, as to what they want. They're going to develop profits, or they're going to develop uh, customers, what their role is, what they do, and then let them do it. You can't. Just say, go ahead and do it, and then you'll find out whether or not you like it, because all it has to do is bring it back to you. They're not going to make any decisions. You want to let them make decisions. And to a certain extent, you have to meddle, but the meddling should come after they know exactly what it is. So there's nothing wrong with, with people give, give them some kind of a manual is to say, this is, this is your function. This is your job function. This is what you do. And we're going to have periodic uh, reports. We're going to have meetings to see whether or not you do it. So keep this, keep the records and tell me it's, uh, it's, uh, this is what I, I need. And then we'll periodically talk about it, see whether or not you fulfilled it. 
It's a question of giving them enough detail so they know what it is that you want them to do and can point to something, not necessarily verbal, but also something that you put down writing. So a game plan, this is it, this is it. And if you do it, this is what you get. This is what you can expect in the rewards. This is what you can expect in the future. So you really have to make it meaningful to have them part of the organization. In order to do that, they have to know what the organization stands for. What are you looking for? What's your prime concern? Is it customers or is it money? Or is it a combination of both? So it requires some careful thinking on your part exactly what you would what you would like from that business if you did it yourself. Then having done that, having said that, I say, good, now, this is what I, I did it myself. I can't do it myself. I need people involved and I want to delegate. Now, at that point, how can I have delegate and have them understand what my, I, what my idea is and what my desires are? It's not easy, but do it. Otherwise, you're always going to be there. You, you, you won't have an organization. You got you. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's a good, good luck. But this is typical in any leadership situation. A good leader can delegate, but he's got to be have the confidence with the people he delegates to. So you have to have a certain amount of control, but understand, be patient because they're going to make some mistakes. But they should be relatively relatively minor mistakes and something which you can see and correct. And when they make it, you don't jump up and down and say, hey, belittle them. You just say, this is a, not, not what I wanted to do. It's not what we discussed. And therefore, this is you should. So you have to really train them. It's a, it's a feat, but it's worth, very worthwhile. That's how you build an organization. Good question, though. Yeah, it's a very good question. So, so his question was that he's purchasing a first commercial building. It's an 82,000-square-foot 80, office and warehouse building mm-hmm. built in 1909. He's buying it for roughly $11 a square foot, so clearly well below construction cost. He, sure. wants, he wants to operate it as his main company office as well as use some of the warehouse space, I imagine, to build some self-storage in the building. And then mm-hmm. in the future, he would want to further develop it and build 78 loft apartments in the building to hold for the long term. So the, I guess the first question is, what are the key points of due diligence that he would be, he should be looking for in a building like this? Oh, uh, well, okay. The first thing is, is, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the structure of the building. How structural is it? How, uh, Modern or renovation does it require to get it up to to present standards? Assuming if you're going to do uh, loft apartments, you don't have the same problem if he's planning on uh, putting it uh, for mini storage. Mini storage does work at that point. You don't need it. All you need is is, is dry space with electricity and what have you. To uh, there it doesn't you know just no no people that are directly involved. And if his main company office, he knows what he needs. So that part of it is well is pretty pretty well covered. And assuming that there is demand for storage, which there usually is, that could be a good source of additional income with very little in the way of operating expenses. The development of uh, of loft apartments that's a different ballgame. Uh, you're going to turn turn a commercial space into residential uh, at a later point in time. That's a whole that requires looking at the building. What would I need to build it to code? Because this doesn't have any of that. It's a loft building. It's an office building. I want to turn it into a residential building. 
you have to go and work with what be required as if you're building it fresh except you're starting out that you've already got the, the basic four walls so it's a it's a different mindset to to do that and my my feeling is on it I, I wouldn't do it unless the I was sure that the market is such that it's worthwhile you taking the commercials taking the, the warehouse space and turning it into a residential space and that the, the margin or the, the, the monetary value is so, so great that it makes sense to do it. That's, but that requires a, an entirely different evaluation. You, you say, good, what's the market going to be? If I built these lofts, what are they going to look like and what are they going to sell depending upon the market? That, if you got that, if you got that far, you need a good real estate agent or a broker to tell you what, the, what those units would be worth. However, Looking back on it, it's nothing wrong with we bought the bought buildings bought cheap. It's a very attractive price, eleven dollars a square foot. For that, assuming it's in in some some kind of reasonable condition, that's going to be for your own office, whatever the you know, indicate that nothing it didn't, didn't say what his main company, what his company office is, or what his company does. Uh, but having this as your company office is, is certainly very very uh, desirable. And uh, you, you talk about having the additional to uh, to uh, turn it in mini storage. Hey, that's a great idea for ancillary income. So uh, I think you're on the right track. I don't. I wouldn't would necessarily uh, uh, you know change it, but it's worthwhile considering. The first thought that came to my mind as I'm reading this, um, and I don't know because I don't know the building, but uh, often warehouse buildings have a very large floor plate. And they don't lend themselves yeah. well to residential because, uh, you know, when you're dealing residential, you've got bedrooms and bedrooms need windows. And so, uh, yeah, if you have a true. very, if you have a large floor plate, you simply can't get enough bedrooms unless you build an interior courtyard, uh, yeah, or something so you, like that. Uh, that's a very, very good point. Very, very good point. It depends on the physical layout of the, uh, of the space. So when you say, what, what would you do look at? You say, good. What, what would be required? To uh, turn it into residential, and effectively, it might be might make sense for you to get some kind of an expert uh, in construction at that point to say, "Here's what I have in mind. What do you think?" And let him give you an idea. Say what we'd be involved in. Having done that, he may come back and say it's just not worthwhile. One of the questions that he's raised here as well is is around financing, and of course, financing mixed use buildings is always more complex. Not that it needs to be, but because you've got different divisions of the bank that need to talk to each other and they don't of course. talk to each other. So in your Absolutely. experience with, with mixed use, how, how have you got those done in the past? What, what, what's worked for you? Uh, it, it, it's hard. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a hard, hard question to answer. What's worked basically is the, the mixed use. What's the mixed use in the area? What's the location of the building? If the location of the building is this point is such that if you, it, mixed use makes sense and you can finance mixed use, good. That there it is. However, if the location isn't such that the, that it works in a mixed use, but it's more prevalent in one particular use, then you got to say, well, mixed use isn't going to work. In other words, it's hard to take a residential building and turn it into office space or take office space and turn it into a residential building or say, well, I have office space on the first four floors and residential above. That's in a mixed use. It depends on the community and the, the necessity or, or the, for the of, rent, of using the space for the use that you want. Now, if, you, if it works, fine. In other words, if, it, if there's a demand and you decide I'm going to build a 
build a, a tall building, and the first four floors are going to be commercial, and the rest of the building is going to be residential or some combination thereof, then if that that could work if if there is the market for for both of all of the units, all of the items, whether it's commercial and residential. Mixed use buildings are tough, depending upon uh, which is the most prevalent use. Right, right. Yeah, because you almost need to get almost three, in this case, storage, office, and residential. It's like getting three financings separately and then trying to get them to all align. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. But he's got great. But I, 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 this, this is from from the outline. This, right? this is this is a this is a, a, a great deal. You bought it cheap. You're using it for your company office, and you're going to end, you're going to have ancillary income by renting out storage space. That's great. That's easy to do, and look, could be very worthwhile. Whether or not it pays at some point in time to tear the building down, or because of the location, or whether or not to to renovate the building and turn it into some other use, it makes more sense. That's something that will be considered at a later point in time when you decide that you're ready to move your company out or fold your company up or whatnot. So it's, uh, you know, right now it's, it's, a, it's a good one to buy and hold and stay. Yeah. And, and you, don't have to, you don't have to worry about it and, uh, as to what, is the future, what the future will bring to see. Yeah, certainly at 11 bucks a square, that's, uh, it, he's got more upside than downside, that's for sure. Absolutely. It's yeah. a good size, it's a good size structure. So yeah. at 82,000 feet, that's, that's good, that's good size. That's not small stuff. Is it all on one floor? I don't know. I haven't, I don't know. Okay. Well, it's a question, I assume, one floor, two floors, but the, this, the, the layout is important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially, especially would be important, as you say, you, you were talking floor plate, if you, in the event that you're planning on turning into residential floor plate becomes very important. So if you got uh, the 82,000 feet, you're split up on eight floors at 10,000 feet, that's one thing. If you have one floor of 82,000 feet, that's a different story. So it depends on the layout and the, the configuration as to the flexibility you have for future use. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. So, George, this next question is is about a deal that I've passed on, but I wanted to include it because I think it's something that uh, a lot of people run into every day, and so I thought it would be useful to, to discuss. And this is a, a medical office building not far from our home. Uh, it's currently owned by eight doctors uh, who have offices in the building. It's about a 30,000-square-foot building. It's currently a 50% occupancy, has not been updated in years, and the offices are becoming vacant as the doctors, uh, dentists, specialists retire. No new doctors are coming in. Uh, you know, new graduates are all going into the family health team model that are really centered around clinics. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is not, uh, it, it's kind of a, an outdated model. Now, the building itself, of course, could be repurposed as just a general professional building, maybe target a broader uh, set of businesses, lawyers, accountants, insurance agents, what have you. Uh, the building itself has a couple of positives, a bunch of negatives. Uh, the location is excellent. It's got an elevator. Um, it's divided up into small enough space that the space could be rented out fairly easily. Uh, the negatives are that its operating cost, because it's an older building, is relatively high. It's up at around 17 bucks a square foot, compared mm-hmm. with 13 bucks a square for a comparable Class A building. So we'd need to spend an awful lot of money just to improve the efficiency of the building to bring it in line. Uh, but of course, that doesn't, you know, spending money on that is hard to, often hard to justify. The building has inadequate parking. 
there's parking across the mall, across the street at a shopping mall, but that's, you know, not great. Uh, the triple net leases in our market have not increased in a decade. So mm-hmm. there's really a, a surplus of office space in the market. And our largest tenant, which is the federal government, has absorbed a lot of office space, largely because they're going through some major renovations of some huge office buildings in the downtown. So they've gobbled up an awful lot of space. But when those renovations are done in five years' time, we're going to see a ton of office space come on the market. So that's the reason why I passed on it. But, you know, it, it's one of those things that it looks attractive because it's cheap. Yes. You, you made you made the right move. Yeah, I, I know I did. Yeah, it's the end of it. So why why are you just going to? No, it's it's. It, let's put it this way: there is no such thing, a, a no right price for a bad deal. And this is a, what you're talking about, Alan, and especially in, in New York, it that building is dead. It's it's not it's dead, although it's dying slowly. But the concept is gone. That there's professional buildings that small are not involved. Nobody's doing the doctors are not going there. Professional lawyers are not going there. Understand that there is a tremendous change now in the professionals. A lot can be done with computers at home. They can be done with with walk-in clinics and different. It's it's you're talking about it. It's a it's a dying situation at this. It will last a number of years, but it it it, it has no real upside future. It's not it's not the way of the free future. And you have plenty of competition all over the place because there'll be other buildings that will be able to compete more better than you can at that point at cheaper rents and cheaper spice location. It's the, you made the right thing when you passed. Yeah. yeah. Simple as that. It's that. There's no right price for the wrong item. I guess the question is, could it be purchased cheaply enough where the deal would make sense? No. That was my feeling too. <laughs> so, so you got that a quick answer. That was my answer. feeling too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll through. I think so. I think so. Well, okay. George, as always, uh, thank you for the wisdom and for the insights and uh, look forward to talking again next month. I believe we are on for the 21st of June. And so Perfect. there will be emails going out to everyone. And uh, we'll have the recordings posted on the website. You can look for that in your and, as well. Yeah, right. And tell them to keep, keep the questions coming. Some good questions there. Yes, yes. We had great questions this month. Thank you so much, George. Have a great night. Okay. You too. Okay. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thank you. You're welcome.